We are up to chapter 4, Mishnah number 23. Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar Omer. Rabbi Shimon, the son of Elazar, says, he gives us four lessons. Al Do not try to appease your fellow man in a time of his anger. And do not console him at the time where his deceased loved one is lying before him. And do not seek to annul his vow for him at a time that he makes the vow. And do not attempt to see him at a time of his degradation. So this is the teaching of Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar. It's not exactly clear who he was, meaning we know his name appears all over the Talmud. We know he was a student of Rabbi Meir. He was a contemporary of Rabbi Judah the Prince. Uh, the Talmud gives us stories when he accompanied Rabbi Meir on his travels. And it gives us, in fact, a few lessons that Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar conveys in the name of Rabbi Meir. But it's not clear who exactly he was. Who was this Elazar? Some have speculated maybe his father was the son of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Maybe he was some other Elazar. It's not so clear and it is debated amongst the scholars. So a little bit of the, about the background of this uh, particular sage. There's a few interesting stories that I found uh, noteworthy. For example, in the Talmud, in the book of Shabbos, page 134a, it's discussing the permissibility of creating certain potions for people who are sick on Shabbat. And that's a major subject of the laws of Shabbat, what are you allowed to do and what are you prohibited to do with regards to preparing medicines on Shabbat for a sick person? So the Talmud tells us, Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar, the author of our Mishnah, said in the name of Rabbi Meir that you are allowed to mix wine and oil to create a certain potion, a certain cream, if you will, for a sick person on Shabbat. And then he gives us a story. Rabbi Shimon says that once our teacher, Rabbi Meir, the same person who said it is permissible to mix wine and oil on Shabbat to create this cream, he was once sick on Shabbat. He had some sort of intestinal pain. And his students trying to remedy the situation for him. And they said, okay, let's mix the oil and the wine as you yourself prescribed that we're allowed to do for a sick person on Shabbat. And Rabbi Meir did not allow that to be done for him. And they said to him, you're not being consistent. You yourself are permitting it, but when you yourself need this particular medicine on Shabbat, you say it's prohibited. Why is there a contradiction between the laws that you profess and what you yourself will be willing to do on Shabbat? So Rameh responded, even though I say it's permitted, my colleagues say it's prohibited. And in my entire life, I have never been so presumptuous to violate the statements of my colleagues. Meaning, even though he believed that it was permitted, because his colleagues, his contemporaries, believed it is prohibited on Shabbat, that was a machlokas, that was a dispute, 
he was extra stringent with himself, even though he would permit it for others, but he himself would not partake in this in this leniency, which I think is an interesting policy for a rabbi and for a halachist, that even though they could teach that it is halachically permissible, they themselves could adopt extra stringencies and forbid it for themselves. There's another amazing discussion featuring Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar in the Talmud. This is in the book of Kiddushin on page 82a. And it's talking about what kind of career someone should choose. Now, the context of this is that there's a law called Yichud, which means seclusion, which is a rabbinic prohibition of men to be secluded with women that are not either their wives or their close relatives. And of course, the idea is if someone is secluded with a woman, it's not their wife, who knows what kind of hanky-panky could result. So the Talmud's talking about someone whose job, whose profession, whose occupation involves interacting with women. Like someone who's a, like a perfume dealer or someone who's a, you know, who sells cosmetics. Someone like that. Because they are involved with women and the women kind of need them to have to go buy their stuff from this particular peddler, there's extra prohibitions on restrictions of, of seclusion of that particular person with women because they're more vulnerable, they're more susceptible to have something bad happen as a result of their career and their interactions with women. They shouldn't even seclude in a situation that for everyone else it would be permitted. But then the Talmud says, well, as a father, you should try to steer your child away from these kinds of professions. Don't throw him in a situation where he's always going to be interacting with women that are not his wife. It's not a good career choice. And then continues the Talmud, Rabbi Meir said, a person should always teach his son a profession, a craft that's clean and easy. Find something which is clean and easy. And you should pray to God. God has all the power, all the money, all the assets that this career choice, this profession should provide for, for your son. Why? Because every profession there's always rich people and there's poor people in every different profession. And therefore, what really matters is how much blessing does God give to a person? That's what the Talmud says. Comes along Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar and he says something very fascinating, very powerful. He says, did you ever see a wild animal or a bird that has a profession? Did you see a, a rabbit that was a tailor? Did you see a, a bird that was a lawyer? Did you see a, a, a deer that was a physician? Yet, they are all provided. They don't have to have a job. They don't have to have training. They don't have to have credentialing. They don't have to undergo some sort of career planning. Yet, they are all sustained without any pain. And after all, all these animals are created to service humanity. We believe, of course, that humans, that's the reason why God created the world. 
And as a result, everything else that exists in the world is there to service mankind. So the animals are all there to service mankind. And the animals themselves that are there to service me, they all have their needs met without having to find a profession. And I was created to serve God. I have a much higher calling in life. For sure, I should be sustained without any pain. So why do people suffer financially? It's only because I have behaved poorly and the Almighty restricted, so to speak, the amount of blessing that I receive. Something that's very interesting, I would say, um, practical, even though it's somewhat difficult, idea. It's practical because today, the struggles that we have today, you know, what career am I going to take? Am I going to go to law school? Am I going to try to get my MBA? Am I going to become a welder? You know, develop vocational training? You know, fix air conditionings? Every child has that dilemma. And we see, even in antiquity, there were options. You could become a peddler of perfume or you could do something else. And our sages are telling us it's very important to make the right choices and don't be assured or don't be under the misconception that your career choice will guarantee a certain end. You can make a career choice and become a hedge fund manager. You say, hey, all the hedge fund managers are so rich and you could be the one that's very poor. I'm sure uh, there are people in every field, like the Talmud tells us, that do really well and there are people who exist in every field to do poorly, ultimately our outlook should be, according to the Talmud, that we should try to find a good and clean occupation and pray to God that he unleashes blessing to us in the occupation that we chose. A very interesting and relevant teaching. Now, there is one story about Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar that's such a wild story and so disturbing that you read it and it really, it's irksome almost. Now, it's important to note that this story is clearly agatic, meaning that there is a lot of layers to this story and the deep interpretation of the story is not necessarily revealed on a surface level. It tells us that a person should always be soft like a reed pliable, flexible like a reed, and don't be inflexible, resolute, strong, immovable like a cedar. And the story that it gives to illustrate this is relating to the author of our Mishnah. It says that he was once traveling from the home of his teacher, and he was riding on a donkey, and he was traveling along the edge of a river, and he was very happy. And he was so proud of himself because he had studied a lot of Torah. This is the background of the story. We have this great rabbi riding a donkey, and if we've picked up this theme throughout Jewish literature, whenever someone's riding on a donkey, there's always some symbolism there. And he's so, so happy, and he's so proud of himself because he had just come from his rabbi's home, and he had just finished studying, and he felt on top of the world. And he meets a person who was so ugly, the ugliest person he's ever seen. 
And this ugly person says to him, Peace be unto you, my master, my teacher. So this rabbi sees this ugly person and he says to him, he says, you're such an empty one. Why are you so ugly? Is everyone else in your town so ugly as well? So this ugly person responds back to the great rabbi. He says, I don't know. Why don't you go ask the craftsman who created me why he created a vessel that is so ugly. That's the zinger of this ugly person back to the rabbi. And right away, he realizes he made a mistake and he gets off his donkey and he prostrates himself before this person and he says to him, oh, I'm so sorry that I called you so ugly. Please forgive me. And he says, no, I'm not forgiving you until you go back to the craftsman who made me and tell him how ugly this vessel that you created is. So they are walking with each other and they arrive at the city where Rabbi Shimon lives. And all the people come out to greet the great rabbi. And this ugly guy says, who are you calling great rabbi? This person? He's like, if this person is a great rabbi, I wish there were much fewer great rabbis amongst the Jewish people, and he retells the story. So the people, they begin to lobby him and say, you know what? He's a great sage. He's a great scholar. Forgive him. So the ugly guy says, I will forgive him, but only because of you. Only in your honor, not in his honor. And right away, after the story, comes along the gay rabbi and he teaches, a person should always be soft and pliable, and malleable, and flexible like a reed, but not be so stiff like a cedar. And that's why the reed is important, because with the reed, you'd create a quill, and a quill, you could write a Torah scroll, and tefillin, and a mezuzah. That's the story in the Talmud in the Book of Titus, page 20a, going into 20b. Now, as an aside, I once gave a lecture on this particular teaching of the Talmud, What's actually going on in this whole story? It is uh, fittingly titled The Ugliest Guy Ever. And if you want to listen to it, it can be found on this Jewish Life podcast channel. And it was released in April 30th, in April of 2015. When you read the story, it seems to convey that the great sage is incredibly insensitive to this poor chap who was born ugly. And the reason why the Talmud would include this story, what the lesson is, of course, is something that we have to really explore. But I think that there's maybe a a very easy lesson for us to learn here. We see how the great rabbi meets someone who's flawed, he's ugly in the words of the Talmud, and he attacks him straight on. And then what happens as a result of this encounter? He learns from his mistakes. And he teaches a lesson for all eternity that I should have been a little softer. I should have been like the reed. I should have been a little more flexible with him. I was too, I was too immovable, too inflexible. And that's why I behaved in this way. And he learned and he adjusted. So that's, I think, a very valuable lesson. Is anyone perfect? If you were perfect, 
you wouldn't exist here because there's no reason for you to exist. Even Moshe's not perfect. The greatest man that we've ever seen still was imperfect. The Almighty could create angels, create robots that are totally perfect, but that's not what he wants. He wants to create us who are conflicted, who are imperfect, and we make mistakes, but what matters is, is that you learn from those mistakes and you adjust and you don't make that mistake a second time. And maybe we could suggest that the current teaching that he gives us today maybe demonstrates how he changed from this episode. Now, there is another teaching, again, this is out of hundreds of teachings regarding our sage in the Talmud, but this particular teaching from the Book of Shabbos, page 105b, is very germane to our subject. And I would add that to understand the Torah world view and the, I would say, the antagonist, the foe that we have to encounter in our lives, one of the most important teachings to understand that is this particular teaching in the Talmud in the book of Shabbos, page 105b, authored by our sage, Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar. And it says as follows, Someone who tears his garments in rage, someone so angry, they get so mad, they rip up their clothing. And someone who breaks their vessels in their rage. And someone who scatters and throws away their money in their rage. When you see that person behaving that way, in your eyes, you should treat them like an idolater. For this is the methodology of the Sahara. Today, he tells you, do this. Tomorrow, he tells you, do that. And eventually, he tells you, worship idols. And you go and you worship those idols. There's a certain progression. Yetzahara doesn't tell you on day one, go do idol worship. That's not how it starts. He starts by allowing you to behave crazy or encouraging you to behave crazy, to behave irrationally when you get angry. You're angry and you start behaving in ways that are counterproductive. You rip your clothing, you throw away your money, you shatter your vessels. This is someone who's under the spell of the Eight Sahara. And once he has control and you're behaving in ways that are counterproductive, that are, you know, self-harm. Once you are under its domain, he already has control. And one thing will lead to the next and eventually you'll do idolatry, which is the ultimate goal. Like a skilled persuader, like a skilled enemy, he doesn't go for what he wants at the beginning. He puts you on a path, on a trajectory, where eventually you'll get to idol worship. If he comes and introduces idol worship day one, you'll say, no, thank you. I'm not interested in that. But he starts off by getting a vise, a foothold in controlling you. And that begins with anger. And before you know it, he is going to push you down this road, increasingly more and more severe sins until eventually you do idolatry. 
Continues the Talmud. What is the verse to support this idea? Quotes a verse in scripture. Lo becha elzar. You should not have within you a foreign god. What is the foreign god that exists within a person? Invariably, the answer is, that is the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination. So as we mentioned numerous times in the past, the Yetzer is the force that's trying to get us to sin. And here we see it's described as a foreign god that exists within a person. The god is terminology for someone who gives instructions but you don't have a choice to accept it or not. When there's a commandment, a directive from God, you don't have the ability to say, well, is it a good idea? Is it a bad idea? It's from God. It's binding. It's immutable. And here the Talmud reveals to us that the Yetzirah could be an imposter God, could be a faux God, could be a foreign God, that exists within a person and directs the person how to behave. And once someone stops acting rationally with anger, they're not behaving themselves, now the Yetzirah is in control and they become submitted to the Yetzirah, eventually they're going to obey its directives in a religious manner, the way a religious devotee obeys his deity. And consequently, it makes sense to call it a foreign god. If you read our Mishnah, we find this idea is being presented. What is it telling us here? It's telling us that if there's someone who is angry, don't try to appease them amidst their anger. Why? Why not? If someone's angry, after all, you would think logically, this person's angry. They're upset. They're in a rage. So what's the logical thing to do? The logical thing to do is to say, okay, let me address their problems. What's wrong? Let's solve the issue. Let's address it head on. You're angry about something? Okay, let's fix it. But what happens? They're angry and they're mad. And you say, well, I want to come help. I want to be helpful. What the mission is revealing to us is that that's not going to achieve its aim. In fact, it's going to exacerbate the anger. When someone is is behaving with anger, they're under the spell of a foreign god. They're not behaving rationally. They're behaving like a a religious person, so to speak, who's operating totally on dogma, totally on religiosity. There's a foreign god who's telling them how to behave. It is self-destructive. It is counterproductive. And therefore, you cannot approach this with logic, because this person is beholden, is subject to a foreign god. And this foreign god is determining, mandating their behavior. And the way this foreign god works is totally illogical, and therefore you're trying to solve the problem, you're trying to alleviate their anger, and you achieve the exact opposite. You're exacerbating their anger. And therefore the only way to appease someone who's angry is you have to wait for the anger to subside a little bit, for the rage to dissipate, and maybe a monochrome of normalcy, of logic, 
to be restored, and then there's someone to talk to. But when someone is in the fit of anger, they're not themselves. They're being controlled. They're being puppeted by the foreign god. And the foreign god does not accept logic. The foreign god does not accept appeasement. And therefore, it's not the right time to try to make them feel better. And the commentaries point out something very, very deep. They say that man, of course, is created in the image of God. Of course, what exactly that means, there's books written on that subject, on those few words from Genesis. But what it definitely means on a very simple level is that there's something godly with a capital G within man. The Talmud's telling us that there could be a foreign god. And we could assume that to the degree that there's a foreign god that is evicting the capital G God, so to speak, the man created in the image of God, out of man. So there's something very powerful about a human. A human, there's something godly about him. There's something that can be fittingly described as man being created in the image of God. And when someone gets angry, the Talmud tells us, that is the foreign God operating within them, and therefore they are being dehumanized in quite a literal sense. The way the Torah describes a human, a human is someone who has the image of God within them. When someone is anger, when, when someone is dominated by anger, by rage, it's the foreign God operating within them, so therefore they're not the human, so to speak, as being described in, in Genesis. How could someone do I, idol worship? How does anger become a segue to idol worship? Here, here's the answer. The human, by nature, so to speak, physiologically, from the very beginning of creation of man, there's something noble and holy and spiritual about man. He's created in the image of God. When someone loses that, then they're vulnerable then it's possible for them to start serving other gods, foreign gods, because the holiness, the image of God within them has been banished. Now, there's a lot of Talmudic statements about, about anger and how destructive it is. And here we see, and this is something that we all have encountered, I'm sure, in our lives, that when someone becomes angry and starts acting irrationally, they are not themselves. The way they are truly is in the image of God. And now there's the foreign God who is the puppeteer of this person. And this puppeteer has the reins. And if he's allowed to remain in charge, who knows where it's going to end up? It might end up with, with idol worship completely. The Talmud tells us, the book of Nadar, page 22, that someone who gets angry, all manner of Gehenom control him. What does that mean? That means that all kinds of sin, and therefore all kinds of punishment for all kinds of sin, are now on the table. The puppet master, the foreign god, his agenda or its agenda is to get a person to sin in all kinds of ways. 
and the way it latches on, we're told here with anger. And therefore, all kinds of Gehenim are all available because now it's like a smorgasbord for the foreign god. There's all kinds of options and all manners of Gehenim now are available because all kinds of sins will now result from this foreign god making a beachhead on a person's existence. This is the foreign god that exists within a person. The real god is out. The foreign god is in control. And all kinds of sin are on the menu. There's another interesting Talmud. Again, this is, there's many teachings in the Talmud relating to the virtues of avoiding anger and the destructive nature of anger and rage. But one of them, the Talmud gives a list of people that God loves. And one of those people is someone who doesn't get angry. Someone who doesn't get angry is not allowing the puppet master, the foreign god, to take control, to pitch its tent, to throw down its anchor, whichever metaphor you prefer, within a person. And therefore, God loves that person. This person is fighting a good fight and not allowing the foreign god to, to take hold. So I think this is interesting. If you study this teaching, we have this great sage, and he's developing in the Talmud elsewhere an entire thesis, if you will, of how a person can descend to the lowest, most depraved moral nadirs, even to idolatry. And the first thing that it tells us, watch out for someone who gets angry, starts behaving irrationally. That is the root of terrible things to come. And what it's telling us is that the first step towards a person's spiraling descent into sin is going to be something irrational, something irrational that they do. And whenever you see someone behaving irrationally, says the Talmud, says Rabbi Shimon Lazar, you should know that the foreign God is now in control. The fact that this person created the image of God, that has been a little bit sidelined. And now, literally, all the hell is going to break loose. What's going to be with this person? They may descend uh, very far, very fast. I think there's a very powerful idea that's also connected to this insight. The Torah so to speak, being created in the image of God and how man behaves when they are dominated by that worldview is supremely rational. I know we spoke about this in the last Mishnah. The last Mishnah is all about how there's this world and there's the next world and we have a choice. Which world are we going to prioritize? Are we going to prioritize our existence here as a soul that's buried in a body, in a body's world? Is that going to be our focus? Or are we going to prioritize the spiritual world? Now, if I was being someone rationally, I can make a very good argument. I'd say, hey, you have two worlds. One of them is definitely temporary. Definitely. And one of them is permanent. And even if you don't believe in it, there's still a good chance that it is permanent. So which one of those makes more sense to prioritize? And if you're speaking to me rationally, you know that it doesn't make sense. It's illogical to prioritize the temporary world 
in lieu of the permanent world. That's rational. That's logical. And all sins result from a person failing or ignoring, failing to recognize that or ignoring that temporarily. There's, I think, an astonishing insight here that all sin is a byproduct of a person acting irrationally. So this is an entire thesis of, 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 of understanding how the Yitzhara operates and how it influences a person. And now we can look at it as an outsider and it makes total sense. Of course, the person who is in the middle of a fit of rage, they don't see that. In their view, it makes sense to take your money and throw it out the window. To take your own garment and rip it up. To take your own vessels and break them. To take a baseball bat and start breaking stuff. Why? What's the logic? Well, there is no logic. You're irrational. And only when you're an outsider, only then can you notice it. And I find it really striking here. The way this Mishnah is framed, it's not framed from the perspective of the person who gets angry. It doesn't say, hey, when you're angry, other people are going to try to come for you. It's not going to work. It's presenting it from the perspective of the outsider who sees the angry person and wants to be good, you know, wants to be helpful and tries to comfort them and it totally backfires. And by the way, if you look at the Talmud, in the book of Shabbos, page 105b, where it talks about the progression leading towards idolatry. How does it frame it? How does it, what's the context? The context is when you see someone else behaving in this way, in this irrational way, in your eyes, you should know that that person is going to potentially be an idol worshiper unless they get out of the clutches, unless they disentangle them from the tentacles of the Sahara. There's a different way that this could have been presented. What Rabbi Shemelazah could have told us is, you are irrational. That's not what it says. It says, hey, look at that guy. Look how crazy he's behaving. Look how irrational he is. You're trying to appease someone else who's acting crazy, who's so angry and so full of rage. You're trying to comfort them and it backfires. I think what it's telling us is, there's probably a few takeaways that we could have, but A, when we are irrational ourselves, we don't know it. Only when you are an outsider and you look at someone else, only then can you notice it. A. B, perhaps, perhaps we could suggest that he was someone initially who was very direct. He sees the ugly person, and of course, all the commentaries tell us he was ugly spiritually. But right away, he says, why are you so ugly? He had a little bit of a blunt approach in the story in the book of Titus where he met the ugly person, and he's on the donkey, and he gets off the donkey and tries to apologize. It seems like maybe he shifted his tactics. Maybe we contrast these two stories or these two teachings, and he's someone who says you should always be pliable, you should always be flexible, you should always be a little bit more forgiving like the reed. 
And that reed is made – you made a, make a quill out of it and that's how you write Torah scrolls. What it's telling us is that the Torah operates like a reed. The Torah does not attack us head on. The Torah allows us to save face. The Torah is going to be subtle and crafty and underhanded in its messaging. This Mishnah, what it's telling us is you are irrational because anyone who sins is behaving irrationally. But that's not what it does. It presents it from the opposite vantage point. It allows us to save face. It allows us to absorb the positive message without that sting of being told you're irrational. And every sin is a product of the foreign god who is commandeering your existence, yourself, and causing you to behave in crazy ways. I think that's maybe a, a subtle insight of A, how we can influence people. Rabbi Shimon, the author of our Mishnah, he meets this person and he's ugly. And again, the commentaries explain there's something spiritually lacking. I wasn't talking about physical appearance, I'm talking about spiritual appearance. And he's trying to help him. He's trying to be useful, trying to, trying to be helpful. He's a great sage and you would imagine he's trying to think how to better this other person. And he presents his problem to him straight on. You are ugly. Why are you so ugly? Is everyone else in your town so ugly? Maybe everyone else in the town that you came from is also spiritually ugly and that's how you got to where you got. That's how you became such a sinner. And you know what? That makes sense. It's a person who has a problem. Let's try to fix the problem. And we address the problem head on. And it totally backfires. And then he realizes, wait a minute, the Torah... How does the Torah treat us? It's much more forgiving. It's much more flexible. It's much, there's much more patience. It's almost understanding of the fact that people are crazy, that people are irrational, that people behave in ways that are self-destructive, that are causing themselves self-harm. And yet the Torah realizes the way to impact a person is not to tell them, hey, you're ugly. Hey, you're a sinner. Hey, you act irrational. Hey, you're controlled by the foreign god. It does it in a little bit of a circuitous way, in a gentle way, in an understanding way. Hey, look at that person. Look how crazy they they look, the other person. Look how crazy they look when they get angry. And the hope is that the person themselves will say, hey, sometimes I also get angry. And maybe I look like that guy when I get angry. And maybe I too sometimes behave irrationally. Maybe I too am under the spell of the foreign god. And when a person arrives at that themselves, and they're allowed to save face, and they're allowed to draw their own conclusions, and they're allowed to arrive at the truth, they're nudged towards the truth, and they're eased into it, maybe that's when it could be most impactful. This is a fascinating teaching. I think there's a lot of psychology going on over here. People, when they get angry, they just, they act crazy. Now, it's important to note that anger could be channeled in the proper way. Uh, there's a book called uh, Orchos Sadikim, The Ways of Sadikim which goes through all the characteristics. When I talked about anger, it 
it goes on pages, paragraphs upon paragraphs about how destructive anger is and how irrational people are when the, you know when they behave angry and, and all that. And then he ends off by saying, "Yes, but it could be selectively used to influence people." And it tells us that when you want to influence someone and you want to get angry, there's a way to do it deliberately, where you are totally in charge. And you're really not angry. You're not fuming within. Your your blood's not boiling. But you're presenting a face of displeasure. You know, a kid misbehaves. And you you want to guide them to the right way. So you could put on a face, a facade of anger, and say to the kid, I'm very disappointed with you. And not really feel anger at all. But that's the proper usage of anger. I remember once when I was in yeshiva. So the Rosh Yeshiva... There was a kid who did something improper. I don't know exactly what it was, but a kid behaved in an improper way. So he was summoned to the Rosh Hashiva's office. But the Rosh Hashiva was trying to muster up anger. And it was all artificial. He wasn't really anger. He, he wasn't really angry. But he, he knew that there's like a pedagogical benefit of him portraying himself in that way. And that's what he did. So, the, the way I heard the story is that there was someone else in the room who said, the Rashiva was saying like this. He's like, I'm, I'm not ready for it. And he was like, trying to like artificially create anger so that way he could positively influence the student. And the altar of Kelm, one of the students of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, he had a special set of clothing that he would put on whenever he was angry. It was like so deliberate and so... And so measure to say, okay, I'm going to get angry. Let me take off my tie. Let me take off my shirt. I'm going to put on my special angry clothing. Because, you know, it, it was not at all a product of the HRA telling him, hey, this person is something bad to you. Let's scream back. Let's do, let's, let's flip them the bird. Let's slash their tires. Let's get angry at them. Let's smash things. None of that. It was focused. It was deliberate. It was measured. It was, it was done properly. It was done as someone who is in control of themselves, who is not behaving irrationally, who has a measured response, who is not being subject to the puppeteering of the Eight Sahara. And then it could be a very valuable and, and useful insight. The Talmud tells us that there's three ways to judge a person. People, when they display themselves, oftentimes it's filtered. You know, they want to look good. They want people to think that they're intelligent and that they're caring and that they're kind. And therefore, you don't know who a person really is. Maybe they're just putting on a good show. You never know, right? But there's three ways, says the Talmud, that you could penetrate who a person really is. Bikiso, Bikaso, Bikoso. With their wallet, how they spend their money. In America, there's a term, you vote with your feet or you vote with your dollars. When you tell the pollster what you believe, that's not really what you really believe. But how you spend your money and where you choose to live, that's real votes. That, that really determines not just, you know, someone's professed beliefs, but someone's actual beliefs. Number one, becoso, when someone's cup, when someone drinks alcohol, that's going to remove the inhibitions. That's going to remove the inhibitions. That's going to take away those filters and who they really are is going to 
emerge. Sometimes you see people when they're drunk, they act, they act nuts. I'm like, how is this the same person? The answer is that that's, that's always the same person and they were presenting themselves fraudulently or they were, they were presenting themselves in a way that was inaccurate. And then sometimes you see people who are drunk, who are so loving, who are so kind, who are so generous. It's because that's who they really are. And that was kind of flowered, that was surfaced with a little bit of alcohol. And finally, Picasso with someone's anger. When someone gets angry and they behave crazily irrational, it shows that the irrational God, the foreign God, really has a good foothold within them. Whereas when someone is measured, when someone is deliberate with their anger, when someone uses their anger as a positive tool to influence others but not as a way to lose themselves, that shows that they really are in control of themselves and they are in fact displaying the image of God and not the image of the foreign God who wants to hijack your heart, your soul, take over and put you on a path towards even doing idolatry. What an interesting teaching. What an interesting uh, story of this Mishnah. As always, my email address is rabbiwalbejima.com. I want to give a quick shout out. I did a podcast on Friday, this past Friday, on Parshas Re'eh. We had arrived back from Canada Thursday night, late Thursday night, 11.30 Thursday night. And I really wanted to do a Parsha podcast on my Parsha podcast channel. So I woke up on Friday and said, you know what, I'm going to go to the Torch Center and I'm going to try to organize my thoughts and, and, and do a podcast. And I was very happy with the results. So I don't want to spoil it for you, but in my humble opinion, it was some of the uh, finest uh, podcasts that come out of the, uh, the Torch uh, ecosystem, in my opinion. But what do I know? I'm not a critic. So maybe uh, if you want to give that a listen, it's called Parshas Re'eh. Influencing people, which is a little bit of a play in words. It's also how to influence people and the people who are influential. So give that a listen to if uh, you're interested.